This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics, and I'm really hoping to get some insight into the question that's been bugging me since the Ford government unveiled its plan to stabilize the health system last week. Now, the most controversial point is the new law, Bill 7, which would allow hospitals to transfer alternate level of care patients, that is, frail elderly people, like those who bore the brunt of the pandemic, patients who should be in long-term care and are waiting for a home of their choice. The bill would allow the government to transfer them to a home not of their choice. Now, yesterday, Minister Calandra insisted this would not be done without consent. So my question is, then, if that is the case, why do we need that law? And what about the issue of pressuring, if not forcing, vulnerable elders? I would like to hear from you. Of course, we've been talking about it for days. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Sherry DeNovo, former NDP MPP and Order of Canada recipient. Hello and welcome to you all. Thanks for being here. Pleasure, Libby. Hi, Libby. Thank you. Let us begin with Lisa. You are a conservative. Do you have any insight? Can you help me with my question? I can't as a conservative. I can as somebody who's part of the caregiving system, I think, Libby. And the way I look at it is I believe that most families do want to have their loved ones in long-term care homes that they do want them out of the hospital so that they can have better visits with them and there's a lot more freedom when you're in a long-term care home. Um, And we also know that there's a significant number of beds that are being utilized for people who don't need to have that kind of care that you receive in a hospital. So what this government, I believe, is saying, we're going to set up these new transition beds and we're going to say you can go to these transition beds and we're going to make it a law so that and I understand the, the concern around whether or not people are going to be forced to go to these beds while we're waiting to go into the long-term care bed of your choice. And the way I look at it is, I thought about it too. This is how I look at it. So when you're asked to provide your list of long-term care homes that are acceptable, you usually give five yep. and you rank them and you're waiting for the ranking to come up. And if you say no to no matter where it comes up on your list, no matter if it's one, two, three, or four or five, If you say no, you're dropped to the bottom of the list, right? So perhaps what's happening here is that they're saying, okay, you're not going to be penalized um, by taking a transitional bed. You're still going to be maintaining your your space to go into these long-term care homes, and we're just going to move you out of the hospital into it. So for me as a caregiver, I wouldn't feel like I'm making a final decision that my loved one is going to be 40, 50, 60 kilometers away from me forever. I know that they're going to be there on an interim basis, and I know the desire is going to prioritize them to move them into the long-term care places of their choice when they do free up. So I'm leaving a very open attitude on this um, because I understand fully the risks associated with not moving people out of the hospital to the system. Charles, do you agree uh, the opposition uh, held a news conference tomorrow, uh, including a new MPP uh, who was an emergency physician, and he talked about uh, frail elderly people being pressured 
to go somewhere they don't want to go and the power imbalance when you have a doctor or someone else uh you know telling you to do something and and also the issue if there were social workers or something and if this is what their bosses want as a result they'd also be under pressure is that a valid concern I think it's a, a valid concern indeed. I, I agree, and I would like to agree with what Lisa is saying in that uh, the transitional beds, if they were to be used as such, the worry, the concern is then they don't become so. And the individuals get locked into certain locations that they otherwise wouldn't want to be in, and they run the risk of of being delayed or being prolonged in those uh, situations. And, of course, there is some degree of influence provided by the caregivers, the doctors and others who make these decisions using uh, this law, this bill before them, saying, no, no, we can do this. It's for your benefit. In the end, uh, we'll all uh, we'll give you better care by having you in these transitional beds and, and put you in a, in a proper location thereafter. The, the point being, the status quo is not effective. These ALC beds, these acute care, these complex, repetitive cases of individuals coming into the hospitals uh, and crowding out some other matters, but they're, they're all urgent. They're all a necessary issue, but they can be better cared for in other spots. And, that's the, and, I, and I get why the government is trying to do something to improve the way it's being served and to minimize some of the disruption. Of course, people will be concerned that they're not going to be given their preferred choice as a result. Hmm. Sherry, uh, what do you make of it? I mean, we've been talking to people like uh, Dr. Samir Sinha, uh, Donna Duncan of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and and they're concerned about people's civil rights. Uh, Absolutely, Libby, and you're so right. Why do you need a bill uh, if this is not in some way coercive? so, I, and, and to and to Lisa's point, I mean, we're talking about frail elderly here, um, many of them who need assistance. Uh, the idea of being 40 to 50, you know, kilometers away from anyone who can visit you, um, with the thought that this is transitional, when you might not have that long to live, um, isn't comforting at all. And not not only that, but this is a this is actually a rights issue too. Their medical files will be transferred. Um, and uh, and again, I, I would simply ask the panelists: Would you like to be sent, you know, from your hospital bed to a, a, a long-term care residence, not of your choosing? I mean, I think most people's answer to that would be no. The other problem with this, and I think this is a conflict of infra- interest problem, we know the terrible, terrible record of for-profit long-term care during COVID. Thousands of our seniors, loved members of our communities, died from lack of care there. I mean, the army was sent in, and the army was horrified. So which long-term care uh, residences will be receiving these alternate level of care patients or seniors? Um, who, who's going to be sitting on the boards there? We know very well that Chartwell and among many others have a number of conservative members on their boards. Is this a conflict of interest for the long-term care minister? I would suggest that that's worth looking into as well. And ultimately, what is this about? This is about looking at our health care system, which is not functioning well. Why don't they simply pay nurses better? We have the worst uh, ratio of anyone in Canada of nurses to patients in our hospitals, um, and it's getting worse. We have the worst record of funding per capita of any province in our hospitals, and it's getting worse. Um, Why are we spending millions on agency nurses uh, out of our tax dollars that we could be just giving to nurses if Bill 124 was repealed? So there's so many other answers that they could have given to the health care crisis other than taking away the right to choose from our seniors. And uh, again, um, you know, this is about rights. And this is about the right of someone who's an alternative level of care to be transferred to a place of their choosing or not. And I agree, they shouldn't be in hospitals, but they also shouldn't be shunted to whatever 
beds are available wherever those beds are available, no matter how far away and no matter the level of care they'll receive there. That's okay, simply wrong. Lisa, um, how do you respond to that? And again, you know, people are focusing on distance from loved ones, but there's also the issue of are you going to be transferred to a care home where you're in a room with three other people and one that, frankly, had a bad record during COVID? I, I'm, you know what, Libby, I don't think people understand the system. I don't think, with all due respect, Cherry, I don't think you understand the crisis that's in there right now. Um, leading with the notion of conflicts of interest and saying that conservatives are going to make bad choices, I think, is is actually not being respectful to the issue that we have in this country. There are families out there right now with violent dementia patients in their homes that are on a wait list to get into a hospital, and they can't get in for one of these alternative care beds because there are people who are better who can go to a long-term care home who simply aren't moving out because they're waiting for their perfect choice and i get it um i understand the issue of being far away from a loved one i fully understand it it's it's heart-wrenching not only full i live it it's heart-wrenching but we are no longer in a position where we can actually have the comfort of not pretending that this isn't a crisis in our hospital and for dementia patients as well, in specifics. So for me, the fact that they're coming forward and creating these beds, I'm willing to give it a chance to see how it goes. And hopefully people and families will sit down and make the determination that it's better for their loved one to be in a transitional bed, keeping for themselves their position that they that they currently have in terms of moving to another place. And I would just say that This is a very different approach in Quebec. They have announced what they're going to do, and that is in order to deal with their alternative care beds being um, occupied by seniors and dementia patients. They're actually reopening the rooms that hold four people per room in long-term care facilities. And that's how they're approaching it. We have a crisis in this system, and we just don't have the luxury of, of making political statements and political accusations when we we got to try everything. Try Charles everything. Souza, Charles, uh, speaking of uh, trying everything, just minutes ago, the federal government, the health minister announced a chief nursing officer. Now, I know that the provinces wanted more involvement from Ottawa, but usually that just means money, not oversight. And this is from yet another level. Does this sound like a good idea, or is it just kind of another layer of something different onto the health system? Well, the greatest cost in our health care system is the labor issue and staffing, and it's a crisis. That in itself is what's even more uh, problematic is the burnout. And, and, and those that are providing the care feel themselves not being cared for. Um, so I get why the federal government is trying to put some measures in place to, to enable more accountability in the way some of the transfer funds are going. And frankly, as, as the government looks at, as a provincial government looks at alternatives by which to provide care, and I'm now talking about a two-tier system or privatization or increased privatization because it already, already it does exist, then they're going to be more suspicious as to how to transfer some of those funds and may actually cut some funding in certain aspects to the provinces. So it's appropriate for the federal government to look at providing some better measurement or assessment of the nursing and the staffing that's, a, that's, a, that's affecting the system because it's the greatest problem that we have, not just in Ontario, uh, but across Canada. So it's a complex issue. And the solutions... I'm not really uh, um, suggesting that more money is going to resolve the matters. Exactly. It, 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 we have a status quo is not working. We are not being effective. People are not being cared for. People most vulnerable are stuck in hospitals where they necessarily should not be, and they should be in a home of their choosing, mind you, but we need to find ways to facilitate some of that, and that's not by throwing more money at the situation we have now. It's by finding ways to transform the way we offer care. Now, I have a question about all this uh, nursing agency money that is going, and I don't know if any of you are in a position to answer this, but, you know, when I have my private workplace insurance that covers, you know, chiropractic or whatever, the insurance company says, hey, 
we're not paying more than 65 bucks for half an hour. You want someone that charges more, you pay the difference. I don't understand why hospitals, which uh, do all kinds of purchasing together and have a lot of power, uh, don't just cap the rates they pay to these agencies when I, I'm told that some of them have raised their prices so much, almost doubled them. Do, does anybody have an answer to that? Sure. Um, I, I'd like to weigh in um, to, the, to the quote of trying everything. No, we haven't tried everything. I mean, Bill 124 capped our, you know, our health care workers who are, remember, you know, first responders of a sort and frontline workers during the worst pandemic we've seen in a century um, to 1%. Um, and they can go to an agency and wake, make way more. So why are we losing nurses? Pretty obvious. Okay, they go just, to PSW. So Sherry, that thing. wasn't my question. My, no, my know, question was the other end. Why don't we pay our staff better? Then we wouldn't need the private agencies. We would have uh, nurses. The other aspect of this, of course, is quickly incorporating um, those who are trained in other countries into our nursing system. That's the other piece that should have been happening many, many years ago, but should happen for sure now. But obviously, for paying private agencies a profit, that is money that could be used for the system itself. And this is a government, remember, that's spending $230 billion on a highway, $4 billion unaccounted for, plus plus, that's already been transferred to them from the federal government. So I don't buy that the money's not there. I buy that the money is being spent not on health care. And I think most Ontarians want to see it spent there. Okay. I, I was asking about this uh, from the other end. And frankly, uh, I don't know why they don't rebuild, repeal Bill 124, because I don't think that's, you know, it might go a little ways to solving the problem, but that's not going to solve the problem um, on its own. Because uh, I think, as uh, Charles pointed out, it's, it's not just about money. There's a lot of money sloshing around in the system. But uh, Charles or Lisa, like, wh- why, why don't the hospitals uh, come down on some of this stuff? They certainly have the power. I, I think it's I a good question. Serve, I, mean, I, I have a Okay, individual. who's going? Go oh, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead, Lisa. Thanks, Charles. Um, so I've seen situations where, the, in, in the long-term care side of it, where you have to call an agency in because you don't have a nurse in order to dispense the medications for the people on the floor. And they'll pay anything they can just to find somebody to come in on that Sunday night, you know, midnight to or 11 to 7 a.m. shift. And I do think that the government does have the ability to set what the schedule of fees applicable can be. They're the government. They can pass any laws they want to. And that some people may say that it's not fair. Well, so is other people say that uh, Bill 124 isn't fair, capping wages there as well. So you know what? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. If they think that that is something that they should do, then they should seriously take a look at it. Uh, Charles, uh, you were about to weigh in on this? No, I was just talking about the complex care. I mean, I, I know of instances of individuals that are repetitive use of hospitals uh, for their care needs. But at times, they're there because some of the nurse practitioners and others um, would prefer the hospital to manage the situation as opposed to themselves because they don't have the resources possible at home. And some of this is home care issues now. And so the decision by some of the families is, do we want to maintain the relationship with the hospital for the care of their elder or find a better source of alternatives? And uh, uh, the, the, the notion that the, this government is trying to force, I think, is, in, is giving those families and those, issue, those individuals that use hospitals as their weekend care to stop, to find a better source of support. And it's very costly, very expensive, and it's not the nurse or, or, or the doctor's fault. It's sometimes the way the system is, is prepared to accept some of these individuals into the ALC beds when they can be better served elsewhere. And they may not like it because it may be further away, but it, why are we prioritizing certain individuals at the sacrifice and the expense of others who are in need of urgent care and are then stuck in a hallway? Like, yeah. there's, a, there's, there's a problem. And Charles, Sherry's point, everybody has rights. But that means everybody has rights. Charles, as long as they're careful. I, I was asking, why don't the hospitals themselves or the government just cap these agency fees, some of which have, have doubled? 
yeah, and and I get it, but we, as you would, as you said, with your your group uh, insurance plans, right, where you yeah. go to a massage therapist and so forth, you may only get forty bucks. You're spending a hundred dollars to do it, and someone has to pay the bill ultimately. And right now, those agencies says, fine, then we're not going to do the work. Then you're stuck with nobody. Well, who I don't holds, know. Who I holds think the leverage holds the power in that respect, right? I, I think uh, I think that if uh, hospitals band together, uh, at least some of the agencies would blink. And if if I'm using an example of a massage therapist or a chiropractor, so the one that practices in Rosedale and charges you know thirty percent over isn't going to change, but the one down the street from me will. <laughs> you know what I mean? I get it, and, and, and but that's because we're 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 finding ourselves in a predicament of having to do it in the hospital, where it can be done elsewhere, at well, a lower cost. Well, yeah, even uh, you know, will the uh, moving the ALC patients? They, it's not even all of them. It's sort of two hundred at a time, Sherry. Like, how far will that go to solving the problem? Well, exactly, and and Libby, I'm absolutely with you. The the, the fees to private agencies should be capped, and and it, this is not rocket science. It could be done tomorrow. Um, the other uh, historical aspect is that we didn't always have these private staffing agencies. It was once done in the public sphere, um, and you know the government had uh, you know basically run its own agency of nurses that would come and provide home care, et cetera, et cetera, um, and that has been privatized over the years. And the result is that you're paying way more. For it, um, so the the basic question here here is: Do we want to move towards United States style healthcare, where you know unless you have uh, an insurance plan that's good, um, you're out of luck, and you mortgage your house if you get cancer, um, or do we want to bolster the public system? And I think. This government, well, I know this government was not elected to privatize our health care system, and that is, in essence, what is going on here. So I get the pandemic, I get it's unprecedented times, but the answer is not more money to private agencies. The answer is more money into our public system, and that money has been cut with this government without a question, and more money into public long-term care. Well, it's actually, uh, I mean, if, if you're looking at inflation, I guess you can say everything's is cut, but it's, it's, it's more than ever, and uh, it's, I think every measure shows that we're just not spending what we spend in the right way. But uh, let's move on. Uh, we had the uh, the German Chancellor here, and uh, the government is defending its decision to give back the Russian turbines. Uh, Lisa, what do you think of that? Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense from a pure logic point of view that you want to make sure that, you know, so basically, Libby, what's happening in Germany is they're being strangled by the fact that they're reliant upon natural gas from Russia uh, through the, the Nord Stream pipeline. And any any ability Russia is going to take or that they will have in order to constrict the flow even more to Germany, they'll do. They'll do so. And that's going to impact the, the, the German people because they're going to end up with these incredibly expensive power bills when, when, the, when they become due in the winter. And that has a huge impact on individuals. So the sanction in this case is going to have a, an extreme detrimental effect impact on German people. And as a result, the decision was taken by their government and by this government to return the turbines so that Russia would have less of a lever in order to create harm or havoc on a Western democracy. Charles, um, was it the right decision? Yeah, it was a very tough decision, I'm sure, especially for Christia Freeland, um, given her relationship with the Ukraine and the things that's going on, for all of us, frankly. I'm with Lisa on this one. They didn't have much of a choice. And uh, and, and in some respects, it's giving the, this government an opportunity to promote hydrogen contracts that are now in discussions with Germany. Clean, reliable energy, an alternative form of energy, to uh, make up for the difference in, in, in the commitment that they have with Russia. And that's exciting because that's a whole new economy that we would be promoting in terms of energy uh, sources. So I'm, ex- I'm kind of excited about the result of what's happening with regards to those turbines but to look at alternative forms of support. The Prime Minister himself is saying he's not sure that's economically viable. Sherry? 
Well, I mean, the, the broader question, and I, I would go along with Lisa and Charles on this, but the broader question here, I mean, Saudi Arabia is just investing in, in EV batteries. I mean, when, um, when we are dependent on Saudi Arabia and Putin for basically anything, and let's face it, Russia is a huge gas station, that's where they get most of their revenue from, um, then we've got a problem. We should be rushing to renewables. Uh, and this crisis in Ukraine is a classic example of why we shouldn't be beholden to Putin or to, you know, the royal family in, in uh, the Souths. So um, that's the broader question here. But given the interim question, absolutely not much choice. Okay, uh, I'm looking at the clock. We are just about out of time. Uh, Charles, uh, what are you looking at over the next week and over the next while? I know you're going on a great trip. Yes, I am, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to uh, so being away for a few weeks. But I will have my uh, my pulse on what's happening, because I'll be in Europe, so I'll be very keen to see what's happening as we proceed through those countries to see how the relationship is with, with the Ukraine and Russia. And and the drama that's happening in, in the United States, I, I don't need to watch Netflix when I watch Trump <laughs> having to defend himself. So it's all very good. Okay, yeah. And uh, as a note, speaking of Europe, uh, the 31st anniversary of uh, Ukraine independence is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, And here they are in the midst of this horrible six-month war. And, uh, you know, we're having a fair number of people from Ukraine coming here. But I think it's a dwindling number at at the moment, Sherry. Uh, Yes. um, Well, uh, I mean, all we can do really looking forward in terms of Ukraine is is just, you know, prayer at this point. Uh, um, I mean, it's it really is a symbol of of strength versus you know adversity. And um, as, as I said, uh, whatever we can do to make ourselves independent of of uh, of Russia and uh, and of, the, of Saudi Arabia and of quite frankly the United States in some ways um, is a good thing here. And uh, yeah, so here's to renewables would be wonderful. Lisa, what what are you looking for in the week ahead? Well, you know, not just the week. I mean, my um, my mind is on what is the outcome of the federal conservative race that winds up finally in September. And then after that is the conservative race that is happening in Alberta. So we'll have a new premier and we'll have a new leader of the opposition, both of the conservative stripe, and maybe taking us in completely different directions that any of us anticipate. So I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about what that's going to look like in the future. And and le, let me ask you a follow-up on that. It looks like Pierre Poilievre has it sewn up. Uh, um, what are you thinking? Well, I, and I do. I believe that as well. I think um, I think that's very clear. And he is. I'm amazed by how much traveling he's doing, Libby, and how many small communities he's going to to get his vote out. So he's proving himself to be a formidable campaigner. And for me, it's as much about watching with the Liberals how they're going to react to him and their their desire to paint him as a certain picture out of the gate. And I think they're beginning to realize they're going to have to do that. So I think it'll be a, a fall of acrimony. Oh. <laughs> Lots of negative ads happening. Oh, okay. Well, uh, <laughs> plus a change, as they say. Uh, we will all talk again soon. Thank you so much, Charles Sousa, Sherry DeNovo, and Lisa Raitt. Good afternoon, everyone. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, how was it that the government handed out over $130,000 to a, quote, anti-racism group uh, and a guy that had posted hundreds of vile, violent anti-Semitic tweets, also targeting French Canadians, among others. Uh, The government pulled back the funding yesterday, but what the heck was going on there when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Jewish groups and others are relieved that Ottawa is cutting funding to an anti-racism project led by a senior consultant who has a long history of posting abhorrent, violent, anti-Semitic tweets. The government gave $133,000 to the Community Media Advocacy Centre last year to build an anti-racism strategy for the broadcasting sector. Well, yesterday, Ahmed Hussein, the Minister of Housing, Diversity and Inclusion, uh, issued a statement that the money has been cut, the project suspended due to what he called reprehensible and vile comments made by Laith Marouf. Uh, And the minister also demanded to know how the organization hired Marouf, though it turns out that Marouf and his wife are the organization, which is apparently headquartered in their home. And only five months ago, Hussein's personal endorsement was featured in a press release issued by this group, the Community Media Advocacy Centre. And all of this, despite the fact that Marouf's, even his Twitter account was suspended for the hundreds of tweets, which among other things, and forgive me here, uh, called for, quote, a bullet to the head for people he referred to as Jewish white supremacists. Uh, What do you think? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we will be talking to a number of stakeholders, starting with Liberal MP Anthony House, father of Mount Royal. And uh, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Nice to be with you, Libby. Thank you so much. Well, and you're a Liberal MP. uh, I believe so far the only one who's really taking on your own government. Um, What do you make of this? How do you think this could happen? So I, I would note that I'm certainly not the only one that, that, first of all, I don't know that I'm taking on the government. What I'm saying is that this situation was totally unacceptable, and there needs to be accountability. Um, and we all need to work together to make sure that we never have a situation where a company uh, like this, uh, a nonprofit like this, gets government funding associated with a notorious anti-Semite. And, uh, and he's not only an anti-Semite, he's made negative comments about other groups as well, such as Francophones and Americans and, you know, and, and, and God knows what. So, so we need to have a process in place to make sure this never happens again. And we can't simply point the finger at the organization. The department has to accept accountability for having agreed to this grant and for not having monitored it properly. So, so you know, that, that, that's what I'm saying. And I, I can only tell you, Libby, that uh, a number of my colleagues, including Yara Sachs, uh, you know, Julie DeBruzen, have been uh, working with me on this and, and have been uh, very forceful and very helpful in, uh, in getting us to where the contract is ended and, uh, you know, and, and, and the requirement for accountability being put in place. Um, so... What are you finding so far there? I, I, I detect two different narratives. Uh, one of them is that it, it happened at election time. It involved two government departments that each thought they were doing vetting because the, the government was approved by heritage but handed out by diversity and inclusion. And those departments kind of flipped around after the election. Uh, and um, something that I've been saying is that a lot of the government working at home during the pandemic uh, maybe didn't have so much working in it. You know, I, I think that we all found ways in all of our different jobs to do things from, from home. I don't think that excuses, um, you know, giving a contract to, to, to an organization like this. We can Google from home just like we can Google from the office and find his horrendous uh, statements. I do think, uh, you know, I haven't personally heard this excuse. I saw it written about in, I believe, Brian Lilly's column in the Toronto Sun. Um, what, what I think is clear, again, because, you know, you can't fix what happened before, although you can demand accountability and you could try to figure out who's responsible. What we need to make sure of is whatever happens going forward, that there's more responsibility and, and whether it's better diligence, better monitoring and different contracts, perhaps. Perhaps there need to be clauses in the contracts that allow for them to be terminated right away uh, if it's found that the organization has done certain things. Like, you know, I have to look at it because I haven't seen this contract yet, but that's something we need to go into as well. What some people are saying is that, generally speaking, uh, that while 
anti-Semitism and racism on the right is uh, is shut down right away, uh, it's often tolerated on the left. What do you think of that analysis? I, I think anti-Semitism, honestly, I, I, as the chair of, of the Interparliamentary Task Force on Online Anti-Semitism, which brings together a bipartisan group of legislators from across the world. Um, in Canada, you have myself from the Liberals, you have Marty Morantz from the Conservatives, you have Ryan Garrison from the NDP. I believe there's cross-party support for eradicating anti-Semitism. I don't think anyone promotes it. What I do believe in our society is that anti-Semitism is not often diagnosed or understood. That it's not, that even though we've accepted, by, and, and this government has led in adopting the IRA definition, there are many times where vile anti-Semitism is buried in anti-Israel rhetoric. And that is not understood to be anti-Semitism when it clearly is. And I think we need to recognize that both on the far right and the far left, there is anti-Semitism, different. And they both need to have, be treated equally and be equally eradicated. And, and, and so we all need to look within our own organizations and make sure that we are properly trained to understand anti-Semitism and not to tolerate it from one side and not from the other. I, I see both, you know, I often see people on the right tolerating it on the right and not on the left and vice versa, and both of them are equally egregious. And uh, again, in terms of, I mean, we had uh, the minister supporting this guy. I mean, it, who has to do the vetting? I mean, obviously no one did here, but, but do you have a sense of where the failure was? Well, I mean, I think, again, in, in the case of the press release, uh, the Department of Canadian Heritage you know, sent a press release to the minister's office with a quote from the minister. Now, the minister normally would not be involved whatsoever in that type of a press release. It would be staff from the department, and then people from the minister's office would sign off on it. Um, so in this case, there was clearly, um, you know, people that, that didn't do their due diligence. And, and again, the minister, if I were him, uh, I would be looking for really, really quick answers and, and be pretty angry about uh, the lack of diligence here because he associated his good name with this vile, vicious anti-Semite. And, and, and I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think that's acceptable. In this, in this case, there was a lot of diligence that was missed. It's clear. Uh, you're talking about accountability. So who is accountable? I mean, what a general observation. Uh, you know, we used to have ministerial accountability. Uh, we don't seem to have that anymore. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that um, ministers resign over this, but, uh, you know, that's kind of uh, where does the buck stop? Uh, so I would say this. Number one, the buck stops at the top with the minister because he's responsible or she's responsible for their department. It doesn't mean they're responsible for every individual error that occurs at levels beneath them that they're not aware of. It means that they have a responsibility once they do become aware of it to ensure that processes are put in place to make sure it never happens again. That's their responsibility. And, and, and then there's people who were involved directly with this contract um, and with that press release, and you would need to ask the questions whether they followed processes or they skipped over them, and how you ended up with this 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 egregious contract being given. And, and I think this is where the minister has now uh, committed to, to me, to Jewish organizations, there'll be a diligence in the department. Uh, I sit on the Committee of Canadian Heritage, and I believe that we should then uh, have the minister come and tell us what his solutions are. Um, and, and how we're going to prevent having this happen, and the committee should be making its own recommendations if they need to go beyond the minister's ones. And we all have a responsibility in this process as parliamentarians from all parties uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Okay. MP Anthony, House Father, uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Anytime, Libby. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are taking another break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and also uh, take some of the calls that are piling up. Don't worry, we will get to you, and we'll talk to a couple of other stakeholders when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are continuing the conversation about this latest boondoggle involving a $133,000 grant from the Liberal government to a company that uh, and a consultant who is making really violent, vile, anti-Semitic, anti-French, 
anti-whatever tweets, and they were charged to use this money to deliver anti-racism training. Uh, right now, let's bring in Shimon Koffler Fogel, President and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, and Marvin Rotrand, the National Director of B'nai B'rith Canada's League for Human Rights and People. I will get to your calls. Uh, welcome. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Shimon Koffler Fogel, uh, I think the government wants to think, okay, uh, case closed, nothing to see here, uh, it's over. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't share that interpretation of events. Um, um, I think that uh, we can divide this into two, in, into two questions. One is, how did this happen? Uh, and we can have a discussion about that. Um, the other question, um, at the moment, the one that's more important, is what does the government do going forward? And I think in that respect, um, Ahmed Hussein, who's uh, the minister responsible, um, has been pretty clear um, about how he views um, Mr. Uh, Marouf's um, uh, posts and tweets and his general attitude that's been on display for more than 20 years. Uh, and he has expressed uh, not just condemnation of that, but um, I think genuine resolve uh, to understand what mistakes allowed it, uh, and more importantly, what does the government have to put into place at Heritage Canada in order to ensure um, proper um, vetting, uh, that due diligence is undertaken in an effective way, and that this kind of thing never happens again. Uh, so uh, those are his words. We're going to have to evaluate and monitor whether uh, they translate into meaningful deeds. Um, but I, I don't think the government is running away from the problem. Uh, Marvin Rotran, do you agree? Uh, actually, I share Shimon's uh, analysis, but well, clearly someone at Heritage Canada was not doing their job. This contract should never have been awarded in the first place. And despite the fact that the minister did denounce Maroof as repugnant and he did cut the contract, somebody should have caught this somewhere along the way. The vetting process is inadequate. Look, Maroof has a very long history as a consultant with CMAC, and nobody seems to have taken into account his flagrant anti-Semitic and racist posts. You yourself said... He aims at Jews, at Israel, at French Canadians, but there's a lot more vile stuff. There's anti-black stuff. Uh, basically, he tweeted he was unhappy so few Americans were killed in Vietnam. He considers Canada to be a racist, colonialist uh, venture, and somehow he managed to get through the scrutiny process, and he's the last guy you want to be teaching uh, anti, uh, anti-racism. But what we're going to recommend to the government of Canada is that the vetting process, including for grants, has to apply the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of uh, anti-Semitism. Now, the government committed to that last year at the International Forum in Malmo. And just recently, Livian, I'm just going to read you one paragraph. The House Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security adopted the following, that the government of Canada thoroughly reject the demonization and delegitimization of the state of Israel and condemn all attempts by Canadian organizations, groups, or individuals, including university campus associations, to promote these views both at home and abroad. Now, that should have been something that was in the mind of Heritage Canada, and that's got to be something that's in the mind of Heritage Canada. The group got $133,000 for six seminars. They've done three. The three are cancelled, but... Do they have to give money back? Do you know? Well, it's a question we're asking the government. We don't know. But, however, uh, the premise isn't entirely wrong. Their project is to highlight supposed rampant racism in the Canadian media. And this organization defines itself as fighting Canadian colonialism and racism. I don't think most Canadians are going to identify their country as that. For better or worse, we try to be inclusive and tolerant in this country, and most people agree that's the Canadian way. And yet we're giving money to groups like this that take a view of Canada that just doesn't exist. So we're going to be following up with... uh, Heritage Canada. It's not only Maroof. We want the group gone because their core values are anti-Canadian. Oh Well, it, it looks like he is the group. It's him and his wife out of their house. Well, uh, so, so Libby, you're, yeah. you're actually getting to uh, a really important point. Uh, CMAC is um, actually um, a uh, corporate fiction. 
Um, it was Maruf and his wife um, who set it up. Uh, they may build themselves as consultants, uh, but there is no staff. Um, it's all him. Uh, so when it comes to the question of due diligence, it wasn't um, just about which consultants, so-called, um, that CMAC was um, uh, contracting uh, to carry out the training. It's what about the organization itself, CMAC, um, which, um, you know, has, as, as, as Marvin suggested, a very, very clear orientation, one that I think uh, most Canadians would not share. Uh, but the problem goes beyond CMAC as one organization or one contract. Um, we have um, uh, shared with the government um, information about other contracts that have been awarded to other agencies um, that are equally as troubling in terms of their track record um, of uh, incitement uh, towards hatred and violence um, uh, using their organization uh, as a platform uh, for disseminating hate. Uh, and they have been, in this case, the Muslim Association of Canada, uh, which espouses uh, a view that most Canadian Muslims would not share, um, having benefited from literally millions of dollars uh, of support uh, for uh, projects um, through Heritage Canada. Uh, so there's something very, very broken within the department. Um, minister Hussein himself actually is not implicated because he wasn't even the minister responsible for the for the portfolio uh, when the grants were were initially awarded. Uh, but he does, as Anthony Housefather indicated, uh, he does bear ultimate responsibility for ensuring uh, that what has been shown to be deficient um, uh, is addressed and corrected. Uh, and I think we have to hold them to the highest possible standard. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Donald in Markham. Hi, Donald. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. You're on the air. Okay, I agree with the one caller. The system ought to down. Um, I am a manager at a roofing company, and I got called in uh, a couple of years ago. A safety officer one of, for one of our builders had called because somebody wasn't uh, tied off. And he said, I want to make sure you take care of this, and I did. Two days later, I was in the owner's office getting questioned, what happened? What did you do? I said, I did this, this, and this. I followed what we're supposed to do. The gentleman has been written up. If he gets caught again, he's fired. Uh, he is also redoing his safety training, etc. All right, let me know if you need anything. Thank you, sir. Bye. That was it. Obviously, in this case, um, somebody has to go, as they say, the minister has to go back to the people who did this and say, Okay, how did this happen? Why wasn't it properly vetted? Clearly, thank you very much for your call. Let's get to Ike in Toronto. Hi, Ike. I, actually, my name's Mike. Mike, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Yes, Libby, this is a very painful episode. I think we're seeing, you know, the wolf who put on the sheep's uh, clothing again. This is a common uh, practice uh, in business often, too. And, well, this is a business for this uh, person, uh, so so that's an element. The other element is the possibility of sabotage within the government, where somebody is actually, you know, deliberately doing this. Uh, you know, giving uh, an okay on somebody that they know is is going to cause trouble. And uh, I I would suggest that it often happens with government. I mean, we saw the We Charity. Uh, Okay, we've uh, we've lost Mike. Uh, thanks for your call. Uh, let's go back to our guests, uh, Marvin. Do you think uh, that there's a possibility that there are people inside the government who uh, you know agree with these views and and therefore have been okaying this? I'm doubtful. Anything is possible, of course, but I don't believe so. Look, I'm not going to blame the minister for this because I know he doesn't examine every grant application, thousands that come in. Somebody else should have done that part. But 
you know, clearly there was something wrong with this group and a lot of other groups that are getting grants. Uh, Gretchen King, who might or might not be the wife of Leif Marouk, recently wrote a piece entitled Disrupting Settler Colonialism and Oppression in Media and Policymaking. Uh, I think very few Canadians will recognize their country in that article. And yet sort of the core value of a lot of groups that are getting grants to supposedly fight racism. That's not how you fight racism. That promotes racism. That promotes division and it spawns hate as well. So clearly... Something's got to be done by the government. And we're really pushing for the IRA definition to be a basis of our criteria of every contract like this that's given out. The government, on the one hand, is saying the right thing. The prime minister was the head of the Canadian delegation to Malmo and publicly pledged in front of the world that they do a better job of implementing IRA. But the process had been slow. I mean, Erwin Kotler, as the special envoy for preserving Holocaust remembrance and combating anti-Semitism, uh, has said as much. He said, look, there is progress every month. But, you know, it's painfully slow. We've got to get the message out there to civil service, to law enforcement, to universities, and we've got to get it out to the people who vet applications for grants, because clearly they're not getting the message. Shimon, is is it possible that uh, that the people who are supposed to vet these grants are maybe bending over backwards to be politically correct? Could that be a problem? Could be, um, and um, I'm not going to differ so much with Marvin as just maybe um, put in a little bit of a different nuance. Um, and it flows, Libby, from exactly what you said. I think that there is amongst uh, a segment of officials uh, within the public service uh, a certain sensitivity to um, that progressive, woke kind of um, orientation or perspective. Uh, and for them, um, it may appear self-evident and obvious uh, that people um, of color, um, uh, racialized communities, uh, and so forth, cannot possibly be guilty uh, of um, uh, hate, of discrimination, of animus. Uh, but we know, of course, that it crosses every cultural, every ethnic, uh, every religious line. Um, and so I think that um, if we want to be generous and say that this was um, uh, incompetence uh, in terms of the, uh, the due diligence or the vetting process, uh, then the minister understands what he has to put into place. If, however, there is some element or dimension uh, of willfulness, uh, of alignment with the views of, of uh, individuals like Maruf um, that triggered um, a less um, uh, robust uh, vetting of uh, CMAC uh, or him as an individual, uh, then there's a very different kind of, of challenge ahead and, and serious work that the government has to do. Uh, look, they've put anti-racism, inclusion, diversity, as a flagship um, imperative uh, program of the government um, uh, since the election. Um, this has exacerbated the very problems that they're looking to solve. So it may be that uh, the beginning of the remedy um, uh, can be found at home within the department uh, where they have to um, have some uh, attention or focus some efforts uh, at ensuring that they have uh, appropriate orientation towards the challenges of the day. Okay, and I'm looking at the clock, and we are totally out of time. Thank you, Marvin Rotrand and Shimon Koffler Fogel. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.